praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for the word of God and the great Holy Spirit who unveils and reveals it to us. We thank you, Father, in the precious and holy name of Jesus that you will speak to the hearts of each and every one of us. I thank you for utterance in the Spirit of God, Lord, but more than that, I thank you for speaking to each and every one of our hearts individually. Show us who we are in Christ, Lord. Show us what we can be and what Jesus made us to be. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We've been talking for the last several weeks on the subject of righteousness. I want to continue along that line a little bit further. So let's start in Isaiah chapter 54. You know, there's, um, um, in my opinion, there are, there's not a lot of teaching in the, in the uh, modern-day church about righteousness. There's a lot of teaching about right behavior. But righteousness is best defined, I think, um, with the notion of right standing before God rather than right behavior. And the church, the church majors, the, the, the modern-day church, maybe the denominational world, um, majors on what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And for many people, it did for me for many years, I grew up in a Baptist church, people that loved God with all their hearts, taught me everything that they knew, just turned out that most of what they knew wasn't right. Um, but it, it's, uh, when, we, when we focus on right and wrong behavior, the devil is always there to help us, help push us in that direction. And when we focus on that, we create our own religion that's apart from anything that God intended. We create a set of rules and standards for ourselves that we can't live up to. And the devil's always there to say, well, righteous people wouldn't act like this. A person that is righteous wouldn't do X, Y, Z, whatever it is he's trying to influence us to do. But the word righteous or righteousness in, uh, throughout the scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, means to make things right. And both the, the, uh, the Hebrew and the Greek word that's used uh, for righteous or righteousness talks about it not being just moral issues or moral things that are made right but also the idea of to prosper and the language itself both hebrew and greek lends itself to the reality the truth that things changed from god's original intent we know the bible says that man died spiritually when adam sinned and fell in the garden of eden wherefore by one man's sin death entered the world spiritual death which is exactly what God told them that would happen. The day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, that clearly couldn't have been physical death because they didn't die that day. But they did die spiritually. They were separated and estranged from God. And so when we focus on right behavior or allow the devil to influence us to think that righteousness has something to do with behavior, then we never measure up and we never come to the place that God really wants us to be. We never come to the place of things being made right in every respect, not just in our right standing or our ability to come before God the Father without a sense of guilt or condemnation, which is what he wants. That's the way he designed this. That's what he created. But so few Christians ever come to that place because they're focused on right and wrong behavior. And that never was God's intent. I say in chapter 54, with the promise of a Messiah to come, notice it says in verse 14, in righteousness shalt thou be established. 
He's saying that righteousness is the foundation of your relationship with God. Same thing Jesus said in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus when he said, you must be born again. This was always God's intent. It was God's purpose. It was what God accomplished through the work of Jesus. But it says, in righteousness shalt thou be established. Now, if we think that through, does that mean that our relationship with God on our end, not from his, but our relationship with God is going to be only as strong as our recognition and understanding of righteousness. I believe that's true. To the degree that we are established or create a foundation for our interaction with God, if the foundation for that relationship is righteousness, then unless we understand who we are in Christ, unless we understand what we've been made by the shedding of his blood and the sacrifices he made, we're never really going to have a relationship with God much. We'll have one from his end. He'll still be good and show his mercy to us. His love and kindness and tender mercies are over all of his works, the Bible says. But since it takes faith to receive anything and everything from God, and the Bible tells us that if our heart condemns us, then we don't have confidence toward God. If he condemns us not, we have confidence if we are condemned from our heart then we can't stand before God with any degree or measure of faith that would be worthwhile. My, my point simply is this. If we don't have an understanding of who we are in Christ, the devil will rob us of nearly everything that God provided for us except home in heaven. Most people's idea of righteousness in the church I'm talking about is something similar to well, we're growing, we're trying to attain someplace, and if we ever do, then we can say we're righteous before God, but we probably won't. So we'll be righteous when we get to heaven. Well, then what's the point in God leaving us here on the earth? If that were the way that it would work, wouldn't it be to our greatest advantage and his for us to get saved and immediately go to heaven? But Jesus left us here to say and said, occupy till I come. There's something he intends for us to understand and possess and take advantage of in the new birth experience, which is being made righteous. Do you understand where I'm going with that? In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Now, if righteousness is the foundation for our relationship with God, notice what it says that it will prevent or save you from, or chase away from your life. Oppression, fear, which are the, the, the tools of the devil. I think we could say any and everything of the devil. You won't have to be afraid of being dominated by the devil because you will be understanding of the righteousness that you were made through Jesus' sacrifice, the shedding of his blood. In righteousness thou shalt be established... Thou shalt be far from oppression, for, it shall not, for thou shalt not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Notice verse 17. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. That's got to be connected with the righteousness that he was just talking about before. No weapon formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. 
Now notice the connection between weapons formed against you and tongues that speak against you. Every tongue that rises up in, in judgment or to condemn us, we are to rebuke. It's an Old Testament instruction as to how the devil works in our lives, works against us. If we understand the righteousness that we've been made in Christ Jesus, he's just said, this is God speaking to the prophet in the Old Testament. He's just said, you'll be far from oppression because fear won't have any part of you. Well, John told us that perfect love casts out fear. So that righteousness, that understanding of righteousness, must have something to do with understanding the love of God by sending Jesus to make the sacrifice that he made for us to establish us in righteousness and bring us back to right standing before God. What else could it be? And notice he talks about the victory that comes through having been made righteous. Now we clearly understand that that must mean to gain knowledge in or to gain understanding of righteousness because every child of God, everybody that comes in the family of God is made righteous. And I'm not more righteous than you because it doesn't have anything to do with behavior. It has to do with the shed blood of Jesus. His blood was shed for you just like it's shed for me. I know we sometimes look at people and look at people's lives, uh, church leaders or people that have walked with God for a long time, and we think, wow, they must really be righteous. But the fact is you can't grow in righteousness. They're no more righteous than you are or you were when you made Jesus the Lord of your life. Righteousness is never identified as as right and wrong behavior in the scripture. And so we are made to be something that we'll always be, which is called righteous. Our right standing with God has brought us to a place. From God's perspective, from, from the perspective of truth, our righteousness has brought us to a place where no weapon formed against us shall prosper. Now, you know as well as I do that not every Christian lives up to that. We may not have ourselves. But from God's perspective, from God's position of eternal truth, he says that that place of righteousness, that place of right standing, that position of having been made righteous before God that allows us to come before his presence without any sense of shame or guilt, He says that that creates an authority, a place of authority, an exercise of the use of authority for every one of us as children of God to overcome every aspect of the devil's work. He didn't say most weapons won't uh, formed against you will prosper. He said no weapon because of righteousness. Well, I don't know about you, but that makes me think there's more I need to learn. Because I've had a lot of the weapons of the enemy work against me. Haven't you? So there may be a place that we can come to when it comes to understanding righteousness. That brings us into that victory that he intends. But it's not a matter of growing in it. We can grow in the knowledge of it. But it itself, righteousness I'm talking about, does not change and does not increase. We were made righteous by the blood of Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. 
Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. What things passed away? The old nature, the spiritually dead man that you and I were before we found Jesus and made him the Lord of our lives. Physical things don't change. Physical things don't become new when we get born again. Even things of the soul don't change. You still have the same interests and aptitudes and abilities, mental abilities, mental capacities, and so forth that you had before the new birth. It's the unseen man, the man on the inside, the spirit that was originally created in the image and likeness of God, but then through the fall of Adam became estranged or separated from God. That man becomes new. You become a new creature in Christ Jesus, a new species of being, a new creation, something that had never before existed prior to Jesus' sacrifice and the shedding of his blood. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, a new species of being. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Brand new start. Standing before, before God as if we had never sinned or never missed it and made an error or a mistake in any way. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, that may be how we started, but we've messed up along the way since we've been born again. But remember, righteousness is not right standing. Um, righteousness is not right and wrong behavior. It's right standing. In other words, there's no behavior that you and I can enter into, no sin that we can yield to, no temptation that we yield to, yield to that brings us into the sin that can change the position of right standing before God. That's hard for us to accept, isn't it? That's hard for us to wrap our heads around. I think because mostly because we're so ingrained or uh, indoctrinated into the idea that right and wrong behavior is what impacts our righteousness or our right standing before God. But nothing could be further from the truth. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's the new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Notice verse 21. For he, God, has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. I want you to notice that word made. It means Jesus became sin. Jesus became sin. Now, the religious point of view, and the point of view that I grew up with, was that God imparted sin or laid sin on Jesus. Because even uh, even as uh, a youth, young person, Growing up in the Baptist church, we even understood if Jesus was made to be sin, then that means that Jesus met the qualifications for what the Bible identifies as spiritual death. And that's a big hot-button issue in the church, a lot of church circles anyway. They think Jesus couldn't have died spiritually because if he died spiritually, he would have ceased being God. But if Jesus didn't die spiritually, somebody still has to. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. For the wages of sin is death. The payment for sin that entered the world and came upon the world through Adam's disobedience. The wages of that sin was spiritual death. But the, but the gift of God is eternal life. Well, he's comparing death as the wages of sin with eternal life And those are two spiritual comparisons, not natural comparisons. See, if the wages of sin was just physical death, then we wouldn't need a Savior. We would just, at the point that we died, we would have been made right before God and everything would be all right. But there's a problem with that too. Because if we died physically, 
which we all will, if we die physically to pay the price for man's original sin and for our own sins, then who is there to bring us into the presence of God? If we died physically and that's what causes us to pay the price for spiritual death, then who lifts us out of hell? But in fact, Jesus died spiritually. He had to. Because the wages of sin is spiritual death, not physical death. So it says God made Jesus to be sin. He made him that way. Jesus became sin. Just like you became a child of God through the new birth, Jesus became sin for us. Who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Please understand and please notice that to the degree that you were made righteous, that same degree had to be how Jesus was made sin. Now, Paul has just told us by the Holy Ghost in verse 17 that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. That means a new spirit being, a new creation. The Bible identifies that as taking away the old heart, the spiritually dead man out of us, making us a new spirit and then putting his spirit on the inside of us. So we understand that for us, being made righteous was an act of going from death to life. A change, a transformation, a change in nature, not in behavior, but a change in nature. Well, in the same way, Jesus was made to be sin. There had to be a change of nature. Or else it's not real redemption. There had to be a change of nature. See, the Bible indicates to us that there was a point in time, Romans chapter 4, the last verse of the chapter, I think it's verse 26, something like that. But the last uh, verse of chapter 4 of Romans says that Jesus was raised from the dead when our sins were paid. When our sins were paid. There was a process, a three-day and three-night process, or payment, or suffering, that Jesus endured... Until the moment came when the price for spiritual death was legally paid for. And the Bible says that was the instant that Jesus was born again. Then God said from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This day have I begotten thee. Will you look at those scriptures in Hebrews about God declaring that he's begotten or born Jesus, caused Jesus to be born as him coming into the, the, uh, the earth being born of a virgin. But that's not the reference that it's making. It's making the reference for when he paid the price for sin. Jesus, in hell, paid the price for sin, and then the moment came when that price was paid, and then Jesus was born again. Jesus is the first begotten from the dead. Well, he certainly wasn't the first born from physical death. There were other places and other times and other situations in the Old and the New Testament, even in Jesus' ministry, where somebody was raised from physical death. So for this to be true, for that statement to be true, that Jesus was the first begotten from the dead, it's got to be talking about spiritual death. Jesus was the first one born from spiritual death into life. Here's what that means. That means he has the same born-again experience as you do. He doesn't have a similar born-again experience as you do, or we don't have a similar one as he does. 
we have the same born-again experience. And immediately Jesus was raised and seated at the right hand of the Father. Now here's the question I have to, to want to pose to you. With our indoctrination, un, uh, influence, whatever, however is the best way to say it, with the information that we have, the experience that we have about righteousness being connected with right and wrong behavior, as the church has taught for hundreds of years. How then could Jesus be seated at the right hand of the Father through any means whatsoever other than God's righteousness making him worthy? And if Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father because the shedding of his own blood as payment for spiritual death made him worthy, how could it not make you and me worthy too? Romans chapter 5, verse 17 says, For if literally since by one man's offense death reigned by one, it's talking about Adam in the Garden of Eden, For since by one man's offense death reigned by one, that's spiritual death, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now, folks, the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word should be established, which means if the Bible speaks of something multiple times, two or three times at at least, then that means it's the doctrine of truth that we can hold on to and, and understand that it's eternal in the heavens. And the Bible says over and over again, that righteousness is attached to dominion in the earth. Well, we know that was God's original plan when he made Adam and even put him in the Garden of Eden. They were made perfect. There was no sin. There was nothing that could harm anything. There was nothing that could, uh, there was no sin that operated in the earth in any way whatsoever. And God said, let them have dominion over all the work of my hands. God's original plan, and he never changes, so it's his present day plan, is for righteous men and women to exercise the will of God on the earth. That's why Jesus left us here. The Bible talks about it as being a means of victory. No weapon formed against you shall prosper because the righteousness is of me, saith God. The Bible talks about it as a means of reigning or having dominion in Romans chapter 5. Much more they which receive the abundance of grace, that's the gift of uh, righteousness that was provided by the sacrifice of Jesus, they shall reign in life. By one Jesus Christ. The reason that God didn't set this thing up. So that as soon as we receive Jesus we go to heaven. Is because God's original plan. His present day plan. His always plan until he creates a new heaven and a new earth. Is that his kingdom should rule here on the earth. Jesus told his disciples to pray for that. Pray this way. Our father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus told them to pray that the kingdom of God would be done on the earth just like it is in heaven. You know, we don't have a whole lot of questions about how the will of God operates in heaven, do we? We know there's no sickness. We know there's no disease. We know there's nothing that can harm mankind in any way in heaven. And the reason that is the case is because it's the will of God. Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus told his disciples to pray that that same kingdom that same result, that same absence of the work of the devil in our lives, at least, would be done here on the earth. 
Well, that was when Jesus was here and before he paid the price. Now the Bible says we've been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Well, what would that be if not the kingdom of God? See, the Bible says we've been translated into the kingdom of God here now on the earth. To what end? Well, Jesus said, I'll occupy until I come. So that the works of Jesus can be done through the church, the present-day church, just like they were before Adam and Eve fell. It's brought about a restoration of all things. Now, the, the problem with that is very simply this. The devil doesn't want you to know that. It doesn't change the fact. You not knowing it doesn't change the fact that it's happened. But it keeps you from participating in it. So he doesn't want you to know about that. So the way he operates is to deceive us into thinking that it has something to do with us and our behavior and how we conduct ourselves. And if we do things just right, and we never will, but if we do things just right, then God would treat us just like he did on, he treated, just like he treated Jesus when he was here on the earth. And maybe we could do some of the same stuff that Jesus did while he was here. Well, you can see as well as I can, that's a losing proposition. You're never going to get to the place where you feel right about it. And he makes sure that you don't. But if, on the other hand, the Bible is true, and if, on the other hand, the truth of the word which tells us that we've already been made righteous, that we're not trying to grow to be righteous, but we've already been made righteous, and that righteousness has brought us a position of authority and victory over all the works of the devil, then he has no place in us whatsoever. And thank God that is true. For since by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Notice there's not one word in that verse of Scripture that talks about how you behave or how you live your life. It talks about one decision and only one decision, and that is we accept Jesus, which is given to us by the grace of God and his sacrifice, and we therefore receive, by making him the Lord of our lives, we therefore receive this gift of righteousness, this righteousness that cannot be purchased, it cannot be earned, it cannot be worked for. We just simply accept and receive the gift of righteousness. He can't be talking about behavior. Notice verse 21. That as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, he's talking about a position of authority. He's talking about dominion. Now, we're right here in Romans chapter 5. Turn with me to to, uh, Romans chapter 6. Let's start reading in verse 3. Paul said, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized unto his death? Now, he's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about the action of being made in Christ. That work that God does in us when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior that brings us into his family, he brings us into righteousness. Water baptism is just an outward sign of something that's already happened on the inside. And if water was a condition to be saved, then a lot of people never got saved. 
But if water were the, the necessary element, then there'd be a lot of people that just got saved by going swimming. It's not water baptism. It's the act of being placed into the kingdom of God, translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized unto Jesus Christ were baptized unto his death? Now notice the phrase, know ye not. This is something that's, that's not new to the church. It's not unique to us. The position that we have, the, the condition that we have, where we struggle against the work of the devil in our soul, not in our spirits. Those have been made new. But struggle against the work of God or the influence of, God, uh, influence of the devil, the work of deception that the devil tries to operate in in our minds to tell us we are not who God says we are. Notice Paul addresses it from this position. He says, Know ye not that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Don't you know that you were joined together with Jesus in his death? He died for you. Now, what's his point? His point is to take your eyes off of you and put them on him. Put them on Jesus. That's what I mean. For us to take our eyes off of ourselves, our right and wrong behavior, and put them on what Jesus worked, uh, accomplished, and did through the work of, of crucifixion. Don't you know, he's saying? Don't you know? Well, why wouldn't they know? Because that's the same area of influence of the devil then is what he operates in now. He tries to rob us of that truth, that reality. You were baptized into Jesus' death. You died when he died. Yeah, but we weren't even born. Yeah. That's why the Bible makes a point of telling us that Jesus' death covered us too. It was an eternal death. It was a one-time death. It was a one-time price that was paid. You died when he died. He didn't die more than you died. He died for you, and you died with him. His death covered you. His death was for your sake. You died with him. Therefore, verse 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead, that's got to be a born-again experience because the dead identifies, being raised from the dead identifies that he was spiritually dead. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead, he was born again from spiritual death, by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. His death was your death. His being born again was you being born again. You have the same new birth experience that Jesus has himself. And Jesus' new, death, new birth experience makes him worthy and qualifies him to sit at the right hand of God. Well, then what does it qualify us for if not to stand in the presence of God too? Verse 5, for if, here's the word since again, since we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, the resurrection he's talking about here is not Jesus coming back and you and me receiving our redeemed bodies. The resurrection he's talking about is the fact that Jesus was born again in the pit of hell, raised to be seated at the right hand of the Father, and made a way for you and I to be born again too, receive the same life, receive the same new birth experience. That's the resurrection he's talking about. 
Jesus was resurrected from spiritual death. And we, because we died with him, we're raised in the likeness of his same resurrection. You have the same new birth experience that Jesus has. Again, verse 5, For if since we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his, the likeness of his resurrection. I'll get it right in a minute. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now this is the first time that Paul begins to tell us something about behavior. And notice how he says it. He says, since we died with Christ, since we partook of his resurrection, we're born again. In fact, children of God, just like Jesus was born again. Since that's true, since that's true, should we not live in a manner that serves righteousness rather than serving sin? That's the first thing that he says. It's not because we're trying to be righteous. It's not so that we can gain favor with God. It's not so that we can gain a position of a better place with God than what we had before. It has nothing to do with the simple fact that since we've been made righteous, since we were born again when Jesus was born again, since the same born again experience Jesus has belongs to us, shouldn't we live righteously? Shouldn't we? And then the Bible gives us some great examples of people that were counted righteous. It tells us about Abraham. He believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That's all he could have. He couldn't, all he could have is the promise of righteousness until Jesus came to the earth. And that was many, many years, hundreds of years after Abraham. But Abraham didn't do everything right. Abraham let his, his wife convince him to have a child with the, the, uh, Hagar, the handmaid, that was the foundation of the Arab countries of the world, the Arab people in the world. And that's just worked out marvelously well, hasn't it? But we don't even see God reprimanding him for that. God never appears and says, what in the world were you thinking? Looking at the condition of the world, we can think that, rightly so. But Abraham made mistakes. But it didn't change the fact that he was righteous. We've got other people in, in Hebrews chapter 11 where it talks about the hero's hall of fame of faith. And that nearly everyone, we don't know everything about every one of the people that are on the list, but everyone on the list that we know anything about, we can identify specific situations where they did terrible things. David's on that list. He committed adultery and then had the woman's husband killed. And he's identified as a hero of faith to whom righteousness was promised. So adultery and murder doesn't seem to disqualify you from righteousness. Now, I'm not advocating that. <laughs> Samson is on that list. About the only thing we know about Samson was the fact that he was a whoremonger. 
I mean, the whole story of Samson is about him carrying off gates of the city and having sex with prostitutes. So sexual sin didn't disqualify him from righteousness. Elijah is on the list. Elijah is identified, well, he's identified by James later on in the, in the New Testament. He's identified as a, as a symbol or an example of a righteous man. Well, he got discouraged and wanted to quit, said he wanted to die. Folks, behavior, extremely bad behavior, did not disqualify the people that had righteousness counted unto them because they believed God. Well, then how can the devil make a legitimate argument that our sins, whatever they might be, I'm assuming they don't include murder. So we could all say, well, at least we haven't done that. How is it the devil keeps us so bound by the wrong thinking that what you've done and what I've done somehow disqualifies us? Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Let's keep reading. Knowing this, verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Paul's just saying that makes sense, doesn't it? But please notice that the old man has already been crucified. Now, here's a, um, a difficulty that sometimes we have, I think, because we don't understand the difference between the deeds of the flesh, according to the old man, and the literal spirit that was dead to God. See, the Bible identifies that the old man was crucified. He died. That was the you that died with Jesus. And so who you are now is a new creature in Christ Jesus, a new spirit with the spirit of God on the inside of you. That old man's already been dead. You can't, he is already dead. You cannot resurrect the old man. You just can't do it. He's dead. He died with Jesus. Now you can still live like you did when you were the old man. And that confuses a lot of people because many Christians are still operating in the same kind of behavior and activities as before they were born again. So on the outside, it looks like they're not born again. On the outside, it looks like they're not righteous. But the old man was crucified with Christ. You can't bring him back to life. You can live like he's still alive. But you can't bring him back. Knowing that the old man was crucified, the source and the origin of everything that you've ever done in your life, every behavior that you've ever engaged in in your life that was wrong, sinful, or unpleasing to God. Not part of what you and I would understand of as Christianity. The source of that behavior died. Now, in your body, you still have the same experience with sin in the flesh that you had before you were born again. That part has not been made new. That part will be made new when we receive our redeemed bodies, when Jesus comes back for the church. But let me ask you a question, folks. Don't you think God knows that we still have the experience of sin in our flesh? Don't you think God has it figured out that the area of conflict, the area of battle is going to be in the mind 
not in the spirit? Don't you think God has it figured out and understood from the beginning that we would deal with this ever-present struggle with sinful behavior? Don't you think he would have known that before he made us righteous? Before he declared us righteous by him, by himself? Don't you think he knows that? He does know that. And the devil knows that. The devil's just trying to keep you from knowing that. Now, folks, I'm not suggesting a position where we say, hey, this stuff's just in my body. I can't do anything about it. But let me suggest this to you. If you struggle with the notion of sin, that inherently identifies that from your heart you want to do the right thing. People that don't care don't struggle with it. People that aren't trying to please God through their lifestyle and their behavior don't struggle with it. They just say, well, whatever. I'll make it to heaven. I'll live like the devil while I'm here, but I'll make it to heaven. And they will. Folks, do you know what a blessing it is that that we're not God? I'll speak for myself and not you. If it was me, I'd be making a lot of choices of who's in and who's not. (laughs) You remember the old Seinfeld Seinfeld episode with the soup Nazi? Where people went in to get soup and went quick enough and said, no soup for you. Well, I'd do that with eternal life. No eternal life for you. But that's not the way God operates. God says it's all about Jesus and it's only about Jesus. Through the acceptance of Jesus as your Lord and Savior, here's what belongs to you. I will bless you and have blessed you with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. I've made you accepted in the beloved. That means accepted in Jesus. What that simply means, folks, is that God's not ashamed to call you his son or his daughter. If he's not ashamed to call us his children, knowing what we know and knowing better than we do about what we know, if he's not ashamed of us, then why should we let the devil try to make us ashamed? If he's not ashamed of us, why should we be ashamed of ourselves? Now, Paul's already identified. He said, since we've been made righteous, since the old man died with, with Jesus, shouldn't we present ourselves in such a way to serve righteousness instead of serve sin? Well, everybody's going to say yes to that. Everybody's going to say yes to that. Of course that's right. Of course that's the way that it ought to be. And that's part of the reason, the biggest reason, it looks like to me, how the devil keeps us bound by telling us and pointing out our failures and telling us that we're not right, that we need to do better, we'll never do well enough, we might as well give up. But again, that's a struggle we have in the mind, not in the heart or the spirit. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. You died to spiritual death. You died when Jesus died. You died unto spiritual death by making Jesus the Lord of your life. Spiritual death was never and never will be an issue for you ever again. You died to spiritual death. 
therefore you died unto sin. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. Well, let me back up and read this again. Verse 7, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if literally since we be dead with Christ, since that's an established fact or reality, since we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. When? When did you receive eternal life? When you were born again. So when did you start living with him? Is that when we get to heaven? No. That's when we entered into the family of God. Let me go so far as to say this. Just as I said, God's not ashamed of you or me to be his children. Jesus is not ashamed for you or for me to carry on his work in the earth. Now, if that's not the same attitude you have about it, then your, your attitude needs to change. See, we may look at ourselves from the natural man, from the natural perspective. We may look at ourselves and say, well, we're ashamed. Because we know that we should be doing the works of God. We should be examples of righteousness. We should live in the same manner that Jesus lived and conquer sin and conquer every work of the devil. But we know ourselves. We know what we've done wrong. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. In other words, it was a complete and total payment that was made. Not one bit of work left to do to make you right before God. Whether you feel like it or not, no matter the struggle with sin that you may endure, you've been made right before God. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the, de- raised from the dead dieth no more. Death, spiritual death, the consequences of spiritual death, sickness and disease, poverty and so forth, death has no more dominion over him. We know that's true for him, don't we? We know that death, no aspect of spiritual death has any further place or opportunity to work against Jesus. Paul's setting up a parallel here. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, in the same manner, as real as we've established and settled that Jesus is in a place by the new birth, by being raised from the dead, raised from fierce or death, by the power of God itself, seated at the right hand of the Father, we know that death has no more influence, no more place, no more part of him. Right? Likewise. Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now the word reckon is an accounting term. It means to take inventory. I'm going to use my own words in this, but see if it doesn't fit. To reckon ourselves dead unto to sin, but alive unto God, that simply means that we've taken inventory and accepted the reality. So to reckon means to accept that which has already been established. 
And that's what Paul is praying for them. He say, he's saying to them, likewise, reckon yourselves. You have to do it. God can't do this for you. You have to take an account of the sacrifice of Jesus, the death of Jesus on the cross, and the payment of, that Jesus made for your sins and my sins for the, the sins of the world. You have to make an inventory to identify what is that payment worth? What is that salvation or substitution good for? Paul says, take the inventory and see. Accept the truth that Jesus paid the price for you, that you died when he died. The old man is already dead, and there's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. That's what he's telling us. He says, reckon this to be true. It is true, folks, but it's only going to be true for you if you accept it. And there's a lot of Christians, maybe the majority of the body of Christ, I don't know, that believe that they're going to go to heaven after they die, but they've never accepted that they're already dead to sin. And so that bondage of sin, that fear that comes along with sin, that attempt to establish some better place with God than we had yesterday through right behavior holds them back from doing what God wants them to do because it holds them back from being and understanding who they are in Christ Jesus. Does this make any sense at all? There are things that I see here that I, I have trouble saying. I just Not that I shouldn't say them just because I don't have the words to say. There are some things about this that you just have to see with the spiritual eyes of your inner man. There are some of these things that we come to the knowledge of just because we meditate on them and that's the only way we're ever going to see them is because we meditate on them. But since righteousness is the foundation for our relationship with God, our right standing with God, since righteousness is the foundation for reigning in life, too many believers, too many Christians who have the same thing that, that you and I have or the most holy saint that you can identify with has will fail to live up to who Jesus created them to be. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust of the flesh or lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, And your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law but under grace. Now notice what he says. And turn with me over to Romans chapter 1 when I, while I get to this. Did I say Romans 1? Romans 12. Verse 1. Paul is establishing a logical pathway for us to understand or get a glimpse of at least who we are in Christ. 
He says, we died with Jesus, we were raised with Jesus, we should live in the likeness of his resurrection and the newness of life. Therefore, we should understand that death has no more dominion over us, spiritual death has no more dominion over us, which is the source and the origin of all sinful behavior. Therefore, yield yourself as servants of righteousness rather than servants of sin. But notice when he says that, he says, let, the, let sin therefore not reign, rule and reign in your body. Notice he doesn't say or else. Notice he doesn't give us a warning of consequences. It's not about doing right or else. Now, we may have created that thinking or that, uh, that means of understanding through a wrong picture of who God is. I think a lot of, uh, of religious circles have this idea and promote this idea that God's sitting up in heaven with a giant gavel just waiting for you to step out of lines where he can whack you with it. And that, it seems to me, is the source of a lot of ideas that God brings tragedy upon you and sickness and disease and poverty and other things like that because he's trying to teach you something. Well, if you did that to your kids, you'd be a child abuser. God's not a child abuser. But those are ideas that man has established separate from what the Bible says about God and his interaction with us. Paul is simply saying, since you're already dead to sin, since you take the position, or if you will take the position, of being dead to sin, just like Jesus is dead to sin, then you don't have to, to serve sin. You don't have to yield to the temptation and influence of the devil. And wouldn't it make sense that since we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, we should live up to that righteousness that we've been made? Well, again, like I said, everybody's going to agree, yeah, that's right. But then they'll start having a pity party and saying, but I know how terrible I've been. Paul's not talking about whether they've been right or wrong. He's not talking about whether they've done good or bad. He's just saying, this is the way that it is, so doesn't it make sense that this is how it should be? But there's no threat. He's speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. There's no consequence that's identified. There's no or else that's attached with this. Now, in Romans chapter 12, after he tells them of these principles of righteousness and what God has done for us, notice what he says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. After all the things that Paul has taught them about righteousness, after all he's identified more to the Romans than anybody else, and I think it's because he hadn't been there. He's not the one that established the churches in Rome. The churches in Rome are, are spiritual grandchildren of his, if you will. Primarily, they've been started by people that were saved under Paul's ministry or influenced greatly by his teaching and went to Rome when he didn't and started works or churches in their homes. I think for that reason, Paul gives us a little bit more complete picture of everything that he would have taught them and everything that he did teach the other churches churches that he established himself but he hadn't been there and he can't be sure of what all ever been everyone uh, that started these churches has taught them so he goes into great detail about righteousness he goes into great detail about being crucified with christ and living unto him and so forth and then he comes to chapter 12 and says i beseech you i encourage you i beg you by the mercies of god that you present your bodies a living sacrifice well, presenting our bodies a living sacrifice would be behaving as a righteous man would, isn't it? Being that living sacrifice 
means to live up to the righteousness that we've been made by the shed blood of Jesus. But notice how he asks them. Notice how he approaches them. He says, I beseech you. He doesn't say, now God has commanded me to tell you that you better do right or else. He comes to the place where when he's talking about presenting ourselves before God, presenting our bodies before God, choosing as much as is within our power to live rightly. And he begs us to do it. He doesn't threaten us. He doesn't say, now I've been in this stuff for a long time. And I've seen how this goes. And boy, that Corinthian church, I could tell you some stories about them. No, instead he says, I beseech you. I encourage you. I'm begging of you. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. These last words, reasonable service, are most often translated in in other translations as spiritual worship. People want to know how to worship God in spirit, and they think that means speaking or singing in other tongues. But spiritual worship is presenting your body a living sacrifice. It's letting the spirit man, the inward man, dominate the outward man. That's spiritual worship. I beseech you by the mercies of God, because God's been so good to us. I beseech you, focus on his mercy and choose to present your body a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service. This is how you worship in spirit and truth. And be not conformed to this world. He's still encouraging them. He can't make them do it, and God can't make them do it. But he says, be conformed, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, let me ask you this. Why would Paul encourage them to renew their minds to the truth If it were not that he understands, just like we understand, that the mind is what we have trouble with. When it comes to presenting our bodies a living sacrifice, you cannot do this, you will not do this, nobody has ever done this in an appropriate manner that has not renewed their mind first. The mind has to be schooled and educated into the truth of who we are in Christ so that we see and understand first and foremost We don't have to serve sin. We have power over temptation. We can say no. If we don't come to that realization that presenting your body a living sacrifice is going to be a lifelong struggle that's dominated by you feeling condemned for your own inabilities to do it in and of yourself. But Paul understands this, and the Holy Ghost prompts him to say, renew your mind to understand and to accept who God really made us to be through the sacrifice of Jesus so that we present our bodies a living sacrifice. But now remember, the Bible says the just shall live by faith. That has to mean the just shall live according to the word of God. And so Paul says the next thing, the very next thing he says in verse 3, Let me back up, starting with verse 1, but we want to get a running start into verse 3. 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. God can't do it for you. You present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service or spiritual worship. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's where the battles are won, by the renewing of the mind. That you would be transformed. You can come out of this position of guilt, condemnation, feeling better, guilt, condemnation, feeling better. You can get off that merry-go-round once and for all through the, tran- through the transformation that takes place through the renewing of the mind. Most Christians won't. I get it. But you can't. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, determined by experience is what the word prove means, that you may tr- determine by experience what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now notice where it says, through the grace given unto me, say to every man among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Notice those words of himself are in italics. Literally it says, I say through the grace given unto me to every man among you not to think more highly than he ought to think. Well, certainly that would include what we think about ourselves. But when it comes to our relationship with God, I personally haven't found that I'm too tempted to think more highly of myself than I ought to think. Usually the struggle in the mind has to come, comes about through the work of the devil, the influence of the devil trying to tell me that I'm not anything in him. That I'm worthless. I'm not worthy of who Jesus made me to be. So where it says not to think of himself, certainly that would include what you think about yourself. But that's not the limitation that he's speaking to. In other words, he's saying don't think in any manner or in any measure in any area contrary to what the Bible says you are. Contrary to what the Bible says belongs to you. The Bible says, tells us that when he wrote to the Corinthians, Paul wrote that we should pull down strongholds and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. That's talking about don't think contrary to what the Bible says. And there are a lot of ways that we think, whether it's about ourselves or about the plan of God or who we are in Christ or whatever the case may be. He says there's a lot of things that people think that are opposed to, that those thoughts are opposed to or contradict what the Bible says about us. So he says, don't think of the other things. Think in line with the truth of the Word of God. So when he's saying not to think more highly, he's saying don't think of things other than what the Bible says they should be and what the Bible says they are. And notice it says that because the way that we do this is because every man has been dealt the measure of faith. Well, if the just, the righteous, shall live by faith, Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost, you have enough faith, which is believing with the heart and saying with the mouth, you have enough faith available to you to come to the realization of who you've been made in Christ Jesus, the righteousness of God that we've received, so that you don't stumble and fall every time the devil sticks his head up. So that you don't fall into any and every temptation. It's a faith proposition. See, we think of exercising our faith when it comes to things that we want. 
We want to receive our healing so we believe in our heart and say with our mouth that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We want to walk in prosperity so we believe in our heart and say with our mouth that the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we're healed. We say with our mouth, God shall supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We say those things. We exercise our faith in those, in those ways. But do we exercise our faith in this way? Romans chapter 5 says that those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in Christ Jesus. Do we exercise our faith to say, I'm reigning in life through the gift of righteousness that was given unto me? Most people don't. Most people, unfortunately, and I hope you don't fall into this group, this category, but most people use faith like a spare tire. When a problem arises in their life, they get out their faith, and they exercise their faith toward whatever it is they need or want, whether it's finances to pay the bills, whether it's healing for our bodies, whatever the case is, and we use our faith selectively in a targeted manner to overcome some problem that the enemy has brought against us. But remember, the Bible says the just, those that have been made righteous, shall live by faith. He didn't just say the righteous shall use their faith, but live by their faith. Paul has just given us something here to exercise our faith toward that will change us dramatically, transform us from the way the world operates. And he's given us the measure of faith to accomplish it. You spend a couple of weeks, maybe a month, confessing that you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and because you are, you're reigning in life. See what that does for you. It'll change everything about you. See, it has to be a faith proposition because everything about the natural man concerning righteousness tells us we're not there, tells us that we're not made in the image of God, tells us that we haven't been restored to that place of righteousness. Now, it may be true for other people, but not you. And the devil will remind you of things that you've messed up in. He'll cause you to stumble and fall. Many people he's causing just to give up hope. Nowhere, no writer, no person that's ever identified in the scripture, other than Jesus himself, of course, ever came to the place where they were perfect and without sin. Paul is telling us, Paul is showing us the importance of finding out that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus principally because of the struggle that he experienced himself. Well, as spiritual a man as Paul was, I wonder what age he was or how it came about where he ever conquered the, 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 whole, the totality of the influence of sin against him. He never did. And we won't either. John, writing at 95 years of age, spends the first chapter of the first epistle that he wrote to the church, 1 John chapter 1, telling us if we say we have no sin, we're liars. Now, John was the apostle of love. He's the one that everybody understood. When it comes to the love of God, this guy has, has arrived. Historical records tell us that one of the Caesars tried to boil him in oil and he didn't die. And everybody attributed that to the relationship that he had with God through walking in love. That's what church historical records tell us, early church historical records tell us. And he's the one that says, if we say we don't have sin, we're liars. So he must never have gotten to the place 
where he was old enough, mature enough, or strong enough spiritually, where sin was never an issue for him. So what is Paul telling us to do? What's the Holy Spirit telling us to do through Paul? He he implores us. He encourages us to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Present our bodies as servants of righteousness, in other words, he says to the Romans. Servants of righteousness by renewing our mind to the truth of who we are in Christ. Not who we feel like we are. And don't worry. God gave you plenty of faith to do that if you'll use it. So what are we to do? I want to beseech you by the mercies of God. Not to just use your faith on things. Use your faith. Believe what the Bible says about who you are. And say with your mouth that you are who the Bible says you are when it comes to ruling and reigning in life, when it comes to exercising dominion over sin in every respect and every consequence of it. That's the key to victory. That's the key to victory. John says, again, this is 1 John chapter 1. John says if we'll live that way, not perfectly, Nobody's ever going to attain perfection until Jesus gives us our redeemed bodies and sin is dealt with once and for all. But John says if we live that way, by choice, we'll have a fellowship with God where the blood of Jesus is continually cleansing us from anything that we may make a mistake in or any place that we trip up. That's what the Holy Ghost is telling us. Say this after me. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus because I've received the gift of righteousness I have access to all of the grace of God I rule and reign over this life and rule and reign over my body by that gift of righteousness sin has no dominion over me Say those things and things like that for a month and see what that does for your life. Slowly but surely, it'll sink in because it's the truth of the word. Slowly but surely, it will drown out that voice in your head about who you are or who you are not because of your own behavior. And Paul is telling us, once we come to that place where we know better, it'll transform everything about our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the sacrifice of Jesus, the price that he paid. We thank you that we are the righteousness of God in him. We thank you, Father, that we are new creatures, a new species of being. But most importantly, Father, we're accepted of you. We're accepted in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you're not ashamed to call us children. You see the struggles that we have with sin in our bodies.
and you made a way for us to escape. And it's all about living according to what the word says instead of according to the way we feel. We love you, Father. And because we've set our love upon you, you deliver us. Because we've known your name, you set us on high. When we call unto you, you'll answer us. You'll be with us in trouble. You'll deliver us and you'll honor us. With long life, you show us your salvation. You satisfy us and show us your salvation. Thank you, Father, for causing this truth of righteousness, this wonderful gift that was given by the work of Jesus, is truly, truly ours. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. Hallelujah. Let's end with this confession. Say this after me. I am worthy to approach my heavenly Father. By the blood of Jesus, I have right standing with God. Amen. Have a great day, folks. Thanks for being with us. You're dismissed.